Welcome to Buff Stampede Radio. Voice that I always enjoy having in my locker room, as weird as that may sound. Of course, it's Adam Mustard's But you can't put that kind of pressure on your team. Fan base is so sick of hearing Dan, reading Dan Hoffman's quotes, listening to Dan Hoffman's audio, and we've got a job to do ahead. And welcome to Buff Stampede Radio, back for another week's edition. And we got the whole crew here today. I am Will Whalen, assistant editor of BuffStampede.com. We've got my publisher, Adam Munster Tiger, over here eyeing some chicken wings. We've got Ryan Konigsberg across from me eating some chicken wings. And fan correspondent Tyler Ziskin not doing a whole lot with his life. So it's, it's really a great show today, guys. I think... Um, there's a lot to talk about today, and unfortunately, some weeks we have a lot of positivity to talk about. Uh, in fact, the last time we did a show, we were talking about CU looking like a team that could compete in the Pac-12 for a title, and this week, uh, the mood has been a little bit more somber, because Spencer Dinwiddie, the Colorado Buffalo's junior guard, an All-American candidate, a Pac-12 Player of the Year candidate, an NBA draft potential prospect, has torn his ACL and will have surgery on Tuesday of this week. So if you're listening to this on delay on Tuesday, he's having it that day. If you're listening later in the week, he already had his surgery. But it has been confirmed that he has a torn ACL. And so this is an injury. Obviously, guys, he's going to be out for the rest of the year. You don't come back from torn ACLs within two months, uh, as we all know. But it's going to be interesting to see kind of what he does uh, in terms of whether he returns to Colorado. Or goes to the NBA. Now that, right there, that storyline is for another day. Because there's going to be plenty of time to talk about that. There's going to be plenty of time to gather more information on that. Today is a little bit going to be more about the team. We're going to talk about how these Buffaloes and this coach, Tad Boyle, and his staff are going to adjust to the loss of Dinwiddie And how they're going to go moving forward. And, and to do that, guys, I think we should start... Kind of give it a broad picture of what the Pac-12 looks like today. Because it, it has changed from the last time we all met, which was before the Buffaloes swept the Oregon schools at home. We did a big non-conference review. Then Buffs take care of business against Oregon State. They beat number 10 Oregon. They go on the road, inch one out against Washington State. And then, of course, they lose Dinwiddie and to the Huskies. So Pac-12 is a different animal today. So let's get into it. Does that sound good to everybody? Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. Let's do it. All right. So Oregon was going to be one of the Buffs' signature wins in the season. At least it looked that way. You know, who knows if they were really a top 10 team, but they were ranked like it. And their RPI was up in that direction as well. Yet now the Buffs beat them and they go on to lose two straight games after that at home to the Bay Area School. So now they are sitting at just one and three in conference play. They have fallen out of the AP 20, top 25. This hurts CU. No question in my mind for their overall resume. Uh, but of course, at least in the standing, CU has a three-game lead on them, so to speak, because they have already faced off the one time that they will this year, and CU got the win. 
Talk about how the conference is looking to you guys, namely Oregon, a team that we can we all kind of pegged to finish top three. Uh, Tyler, why, why don't you give us your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think in the case of Oregon, we found out pretty quickly they can't guard anyone. Uh, you know, looking back on their schedule, we probably should have seen this coming a little more. You look at who they played this year in the non-conference, Ole Miss, Illinois, BYU, only real competition they played. They gave up 105 in overtime to Ole Miss. They, they had a good win against Illinois. They played good defense, only 64 in that game. Against BYU, 196 victory in overtime as well. So they gave up a lot of points. And throughout that non-conference schedule, they only played one, um, you know, they never played two good teams in a yeah. row in, this, in the time frame that you're going to see in the Pac-12. So just kind of welcoming them to real competition. And until they figure out that they can guard someone, they're, you know, they're going to be in trouble in the Pac-12. I mean, they'll beat the lower-level teams that they can outrun pretty consistently. But until they decide they're going to guard somebody, I'm not really sure they're ready to beat the top four or five teams in the Pac-12. Ryan, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, they're a team that has a lot of offensive prowess, and they're gonna they're gonna win some games when uh, you know another team has a, an off game offensively. But like Tyler said, they they really can't guard anyone. Yeah, I mean, they they're giving up you know a hundred to the Bucks, and they go ahead and give up ninety six, I think, to Cal or ninety four. And you just can't win games in Pac twelve basketball allowing that much scoring. So, you know, I think they are still going to be a, a top uh, five team in the Pac-12, but they're going to have to really learn how to defend a little bit before they can, you know, almost be, really beat anyone in this conference. Right. Yeah, uh, you know, coming into Pac-12 play, I, I thought Oregon was way overrated. To your point, Tyler, they hadn't really played a bunch of teams. Yeah, they beat Illinois, but unranked Illinois team. They didn't really play anybody. I saw a team that was very good, though, on the course events center floor. They played the way they did against Colorado. They're going to win most games at home or on the road. But, again, to, to, to the point that you guys made, they're an offensive team. And offensive teams get exposed, you know, whether it's uh, in non-conference play or, or for Oregon, it's happened early on in conference play. And I think this goes back to something about Ted Boyle that I think a lot of Colorado fans respect is their program is – founded on defense and rebounding, and that's not what Oregon is. Yeah. And I've never seen a team, five of their top seven players are transfers. Yeah, that, that worked obviously for them in non-conference, but long-term, I don't, I mean, Dana Altman, I give all the respect in the world to have the record they did with that many transfers being at the top of your line of coming into conference play, but that, that's a tough deal all the way around to be predicated off transfers and offense to sustain that throughout a conference season. Yeah, and transfers, I think, are the hardest guys to get to buy into defense, and that's why I thought last year's Oregon team was so special in that way because their top transfer was Arsalan Kazemi, and he was a defensive specialist. He was a rebounding specialist. He could make those X-factor plays for that team that help you win games. Of course, having Tony Woods in the middle to affect shots is big as well, but you need that kind of guy that energizes your team, that makes the big play at that right time, and they don't have that guy this year. Um, another team that's kind of coming the opposite way, that's kind of turning it on a little bit, is UCLA. This is a team that we know UCLA will always have talent. I mean, that's that's never going to be their problem. They're not going to have a shortage of guys that can put the ball in the hole. UCLA's problem has always been getting them to buy in as a collective unit. And Ben Howland struggled uh, with that later on in his uh, career there. Yet Steve Alford has this team starting to trend upwards, which I think is really important in the Pac-12 race. And for the Buffs as well, because the Buffs have to face them two times. In Boulder this week. 
and in L.A. in Westwood. So, guys, give me your thoughts on UCLA because this is a team that when they are on, in my opinion, can compete with anybody in the conference. But when they are around 75, 70, 65 percent of themselves, they struggle a little bit because guys like Kyle Anderson and, of course, Jordan Adams don't play inspiring defense. But they seem to have guys this year that can mix and match a little bit. And Alfred really seems to be finding his way with this team in making them a cohesive unit. So what is UCLA coming on kind of do for this conference, Adam? Well, you know, like you said, it's a, a team that's going to show up a lot of nights, but not every night. And so I think with that said, Oregon dropping off, Colorado with Spencer Dinwiddie injury, all of a sudden this is a team that's kind of eyeing that, that second spot yeah, in the conference. Yeah, totally. You know, totally. out of nowhere, almost a little bit. I mean, obviously there was some expectations for the talent level of this team. Um, but this is a, a team that can score a lot of points, 105 points or more in three games this year. So, like you said, when they're clicking on all cylinders, no one's going to beat them aside from maybe Arizona. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of the consistency, that team, that program's not there. So that kind of points towards Arizona kind of being the, the, the clear front runner for yeah. this conference. Yeah, I was kind of disappointed in UCLA in that Arizona game, especially at home. You know, they had, I think they had a chance to win that game. And they just down the stretch, they really couldn't hang with Arizona. I thought, I don't. To me, it was a little bit telling that they don't kind of have that killer instinct. Yeah. Um. You know, they have tons of talent. They can score lots of points, like you said. But in a close, nitty gritty, you know, knockdown dragout between the two power programs in this conference, they they kind of just flopped uh, when when they had a chance to win the game. So you know, that was that was a telltale thing to me. But like everyone said, you know, the way this conference is shaping up. They still have a really great chance to get the, the number two uh, spot in yeah. the conference. Yeah, yeah. I think from a talent perspective, UCLA should be where they are right now. You know, they have the talent to be a top 25 team for sure. Kind of like Adam and Ryan mentioned, though, I'm, they haven't really beaten the good teams. They're ranked 25th in the country right now, and they kind of, you know, they, they move up in the polls despite losing at home. They played well against Arizona for sure. It's just an unusual circumstance. I mean, you look at their best wins this year, you're probably looking at Drexel, you're looking at Alabama, and you're looking at Arizona State. No one really, you know, is going to eye-pop at you there. I'm not sure how that's a top 25 resume. They've played three good teams at Missouri. They played Duke and Arizona, and they lost all three games. So I, I think the concern, obviously UCLA has a big opportunity to move up to number two in the conference because no one is really competing for that spot right now with Oregon and CU struggling. And Cal, I guess, is the other one that's in there. But... They're going to have to prove they can beat good basketball teams before I think they truly get yeah. any respect nationally. Yeah, and you mentioned Cal. Cal's another team. Cal's 3-0 in the Pac-12, and all three of those wins are on the road. I mean, that's an impressive start for Mike Montgomery's group, who isn't even healthy yet. I mean, Jabari Bird is not playing for them right now. They have yet to really come together, get all their pieces together, and get healthy. So it's going to be interesting to see if they can kind of keep things up uh, in that regard. But, guys... I know, Adam, you mentioned it. Arizona, they were the basically picked by everybody to win this conference. Um, and, you know, I know some people were kind of concerned because Sean Miller hasn't exactly gotten the most out of the last couple of years of his team. Um, but this year, this looks like a legitimate Final Four national title contender. And it looks like they're running away with the league. So my question is, is there any way that Arizona will be unseated 
uh, kind of going down the stretch? Not a chance. And, and the big thing there is, again, uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum from Arizona, they're, they're a team that's predicated off defense. They rank first in the yeah. Pac-12 in, in uh, field goal defense and in field goal uh, or uh, scoring defense. And if you look across the board, 13 of the 16 major stat categories in the Pac-12, they rank in the top five. So it's not just a, a fluke here or there. And they've played some good teams, too. So they've, yeah. they've yeah. I mean, across the board now, is anything certain? Of course not. But if you're looking at things today, Arizona is going to be your number one seed for the Pac-12. And it, I think, honestly, it's good for the Pac-12 in a sense. If you're not going to up, upend them as a Colorado fan, you almost want to see them do well to kind of give this – a conference, at least that one elite team that can kind of draw more eyes to this conference. I completely agree. Yeah, I, I think, you know, that there really isn't a chance of anyone going after them. As a basketball fan, it kind of bums me out with the whole Spencer Dinwiddie thing because, you know, going into this season, I, I really thought that Colorado was going to split with Arizona, you know, take the one at home, lose on the road, and Colorado fans and Arizona fans were going to have a chance to, you know, be, be watching each other every game, maybe, you know, and, and even maybe that, that game in Boulder... Uh, towards the end of the season was going to have some really high stakes. But now, you know, UCLA is too inconsistent. Oregon obviously falling off the map. It's interesting to say that really Cal is like the only one you can look at right now, the way they're playing, that could even maybe give them a chance. But no one's going to no catch them. I think they're going to end up winning the conference by more than a few games. Do, do, do they go undefeated in conference play? No, I don't think they'll go okay. undefeated. That, that's so hard to do yeah. in this day and age in basketball. I mean, they're clearly the best team in the conference, no doubt about it. It's just tough to go through an 18-game high-major schedule and get every single game. I, 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 with Colorado and Oregon both kind of, you know, Oregon faltering and Colorado with the injury news, I think the gap is wide between yeah. the teams behind them. UCLA had their chance to, you know, put them up. They had them at home, and they didn't get it done. So it's hard to really say that they're going to be able to keep up. Cal, obviously, in this, from a standings perspective, is still alive. Uh, I just don't think from a talent perspective it's really that close between Cal. And I agree with Ryan. I think Arizona's going to win this league by multiple games, two or three at least. I could see him going 16-2. Oh, yeah, for sure. conference play. Yeah. And I don't see no anybody else, else going better 13, than thirteen yeah. and five. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I would say even twelve and six at this point. I mean, Cal maybe just because they have the three road wins, but yeah, I don't. And Cal has the best home record of any Pac-12 team since the Pac-12 was formed as the Pac-12. They don't lose very often at home. They have two home losses over the last three. It's so annoying to watch them if you're watching a game on TV at Cal. Because the, the lighting is terrible too, and the lighting is yeah. terrible in Haas. Yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. I mean. We all kind of expected Colorado to be a competitor in this conference. And, look, this is not, of course, trying to trash the rest of the guys in this roster. I just think it speaks to the importance of Dinwiddie that now we're starting to say, well, we had expected Colorado. We're starting to speak in the past tense about these buffs, and we're going to break into why and the more details of why right now. So disaster in Seattle. Uh, There is no other way to look at this than – kind of looking at it as a disaster because Spencer Dinwiddie is not just the best player in Colorado Buffalo's team. He is the on-court general. He dictates the pace. He dictates the the kind of plays they're running. He basically is the quarterback of the defense. He dictates everything that they do on the court with his energy, with his leadership. Now, I don't think he's the emotional leader in terms of the guy that gets everybody fired up 
that's a skill Booker. Even Spencer Dinwiddie himself admitted that yes. in the post-game yes. press conference. Because Booker is the fiery guy, you know, and that's always going to be his personality, and it's important to have that. But what made Spencer so vital leadership-wise was the fact that he wasn't the emotional leader. He was the calming influence. I tweeted this out during the basketball game against Washington that they ended up losing. I, I said a long time ago, I asked Tad Boyle why he doesn't call more timeouts to curb runs. When other teams are kind of going on an 8-0 run or a 10-2 run that I know a lot of Buff fans are frustrated with because he doesn't call those typical timeouts that you see coaches take to stop those runs. He very, very seldomly does it. And his answer was Spencer Dinwiddie. He is our calming influence on the court. When things start going bad, I can count on him to turn things around. And more often than not, Spencer does. On Sunday, the Buffs were in Washington. What happened when Washington went on their big run to open up the second half? Tad called a very quick timeout. Essentially, like two baskets after Washington had taken the lead. He called the timeout. And in reality, that was only, what, an eight-point run for them to take the lead initially. Now that run was extended after the timeout. But you see the difference in this team, in the, in the approach that Boyle has when Dinwiddie is not on the floor. So as I said, this is something that people should get used to because Spencer Dinwiddie is out for the rest of the season with a torn ACL. He goes down at the end of the first half in a fluke non-contact injury in the open floor trying to cut from the left side into the middle. And guys, real quick, I, you know, it's hard to talk about this in terms of making these things too personal for us because really this is about Dinwiddie and, and his future and, and to a further extent as well the team. But Adam, were you, you were watching the game. Correct, yeah. When Dinwiddie went down, before we knew exactly how serious it was, we knew it was kind of serious. What, what was going through your mind when you saw him go down? Well, I mean, like most people, and you saw on, on Twitter initially, I kind of had the same reaction of, okay, yeah, I think the, the worst-case scenario would just happen here because yeah. you see a guy go down like that. You know, I, I ruptured an Achilles playing basketball at, just at the gym, and there's a certain way you react when you know yourself that it is going to be a long recovery. Yeah. And Spencer Dinwiddie's face showed every sign of that on the court. And so that, that's what you're running through. And then you, you're, you're thinking about all these scenarios and you're just going, you know, this is a dark day for Colorado basketball. I don't care if they win this basketball game, which, of course, they, they weren't able to. You, you kind of assumed that was most likely not going to happen. But just they had to lead at the time. But you're, you're still going, this is, this is the story of the day, no matter what happens on this basketball court. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, the telltale thing for me, Adam says the look on Spencer Dinwiddie's face. I think the look on Tad Boyle's face yeah, was, that was, was they almost gave me chills seeing Tad. I mean, he looked like a ghost out there. You knew you knew that Tad knew it was bad, and you knew that Spencer knew it was bad. And uh, I mean, I, I just felt really bad for Spencer. You know, he's putting together a great season. Going to probably work his way into, you know, a, a high first-round pick in the NBA draft and you know you just kind of see it all go crashing down in, in one second it's just kind of a sad moment yeah that was kind of what I was going to say just, you just kind of see it all come crashing down first couple of thoughts when I found out the news is that the last time we're going to see Spencer Dinwiddie play basketball in Colorado you know it's, it a lot of people had this team pegged as the, one of the best teams CU's ever had. You know, what, how is this going to impact that? In what ways is it going to impact that? 
it just affects so many things. Most importantly, him. You know, he's got a tough decision now. Yeah. About what he does with his future. And, you know, he's such a great kid and leads this team in every way that you could want a leader to be. You know, he's a great representative for the program. And it's just not. Nobody would want, obviously, to see it go out like this. It's just a really tough way to, you know, it's just a tough thing to see. It's hard to really put it into words. As, as kind of we all think to ourselves and our emotions, you, you almost have to say, what is it like to be a teammate on that bench when you see that happen, when you see him on the floor crying? And, you, you know, you have Xavier Talton and Xavier Johnson, which in one of the moments that I will probably never forget, of my time on this beat, them carrying Dinwiddie off the floor into the locker room. This wasn't the trainers helping Dinwiddie off or anything. Two of his teammates carried him off into the locker room, which, in my opinion, if you ever question or wonder about what Dinwiddie means to this team, that moment should say it all. A reserve guard from Colorado and a starting forward that came in a year after Dinwiddie from the L.A. area, picking him up and bringing him off, in my opinion, spoke volumes about how what he means to this team. But ultimately, you have, to, you have the rest of the game to play. You have a second half to play. And I don't think any of us would have expected them to win that game after Dinwiddie went down. I mean, we could all expect what it's like or think or imagine what it's like to watch your leader go down and then have to play you know, 20 more minutes against a, a talented Washington team and a team that has a guy like C.J. Wilcox to try to play against them and ultimately CU loses by 17 points. C.J. Wilcox goes off for a career-high 31 points. Guys, give me the sense of, is this was that second half representative of what we should expect going forward from this team? Obviously... We have a couple more segments to talk about, more details about who can step up, the way the coaching staff can handle this, what this means for the season, blah, 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 blah. But ultimately, what kind of representation, poor or good, was that of what we can expect to see going forward? Ted Boyle's big on this, guys knowing their role. Yeah. And so you, you go into the Washington game knowing what your role is, and then that's all thrown out the window when Spencer Dinwiddie goes down. And... So I think that uh, any blame that's placed on Tad Boyle or any of the players for what happened for the rest of that game is ludicrous because, to your point, Will, this was such an emotional shock to this basketball team. You can't expect them to continue to play the way they would if, if he was out on the floor without him or even step their game up to another level. So it's not about that. It's about them going forward and finding their new roles because, yeah, Jerron Hopkins is going to have a bigger role. Xavier Talton, I think you still need to have him obviously coming off the bench, but you're going to have different roles, and I think how they react forward is more when you can be critical towards how they react to that. But in terms of the, the actual game in Seattle yesterday, I mean – you can't place any blame on anybody for the way that resulted in them losing by 15 points. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, um, I talked to one of the players who said, you know, they went into locker room at the half and Tad was talking to them and, you know, trying to talk basketball about them. And all, and all, all this player wanted to do is just go in there and give Spencer Dinwiddie a hug. And he said, you know, when they did see them, there was tears. And then you have to go out there and play a second half. It's just, it's a lot to expect of of a team to try and go out there you know there's of course the chance that they could have rallied around it and you know been even more fired up to win that game but you know I know everyone sitting at home was kind of in shock that's your teammate your best friend 
you're going to be in uh, you know a different sen- uh, state of mind than you'll ever be. So I think this team is going to be a lot different going from here forward. And I think a lot of things that we can't predict. You know, certain certain guys are going to have to grow up fast, and, and Tad Boyle, you know, is going to have to coach them and, and you know, use them in different ways. And the bench is going to have to get a little bit deeper. So I think. A lot about this team that you can't predict that obviously Tad Boyle couldn't have made all those adjustments in, in 20 minutes that we're going to see going forward. So I, I really don't think that was representative of all, at all of what this team is going to look like going forward. Yeah, I agree 100%. I mean, you can't expect it. You know, Spencer Dinwiddie is your best player. He's your best player on offense. He's your best player on defense. Yeah. He, you know, he's that guy that's going to be guarding C.J. Wilcox who ends up going off for 31 points. There aren't too many other guys in the Pac-12 that can guard C.J. Wilcox. You know, it's a big loss on both ends of the floor. He means a lot to this basketball team in a lot of different ways. And it's impossible to make up for that instantly as you're watching him cry on the floor. It's just not its not going to happen. You're on the road. There's no, you know, the crowd is not supporting you as you try to make this comeback and overcome this. It's just a completely different animal. And as I thought Adam made a great point. Everyone on this team has a role. And it's, especially because Spencer's role is so important, it's really hard to fill that role while all you're thinking about is, is he okay? You know, like, you know, it, it's, it's, I don't, it's just not reasonable to, to have expected them to really come out for the rest of that game and make a run. It, there's just no way it's an indication of how this team is going to be going forward at all. And you saw Spencer Dinwiddie, it was reported by Mark Johnson on 850 KOA doing the radio broadcast of the game, that at, at a certain point in the second half, he actually returned to the bench, and on TV you could see how swollen his eyes were. You knew that beyond the, behind the scenes, he was quite emotional. And Ted Boyle had called a timeout, and in that timeout, Dinwiddie gave a pretty fiery speech to the team, I guess, and told them right then and there that, guys, I'm going to be out for the rest of the season. You've got to do this without me. And, I mean, Tyler, you kind of mentioned this before the show, and it's not something that we necessarily have on the rest of the uh, production plan necessarily, but you said one thing that you think you know about Spencer Dinwiddie is that there is no way that he simply is one of those guys that gets injured and disappears from things. You know, disappears from practice, disappears from games, disappears in any way, leadership-wise. You said that you think he will be able to find some kind of role to play with this team going forward. And and it, I think it's an interesting one because when you have a guy go down, I think sometimes you either need a lot of separation from him as a team because you may be looking at him as a reminder, oh my God, we don't have him. He's sitting over there on that bench in practice or in a game. God, this is where we would look to him normally. Some teams need that. Some teams need their guy to be there, to be with them all the time, and to remind them that just because he's not playing, it doesn't mean anything when it comes to the kind of things that the team can do. Quickly, do you guys have a read on what you think this team is in terms of one of those two? Because the way I look at it, frankly, is that this team needs a guy like Spencer Dinwiddie around to be able to talk to a guy like Josh Scott, to be able to be that calming influence for a skia booker. That's my read. What are you guys' thoughts? I think they've got to go through a, a mourning period here, and it, it needs to end after today. You know, these guys are all going to find out about it, and I'm, I'm sure they probably already know at this point, um, because we all know that this uh, sitting here. 
Um, so they need to somehow get over that. And I think his presence on the bench is is reminding him in a positive sense, I'm not coming back anytime soon. I'm not putting on that, that jersey. So I think that's a positive thing in general. Um, I, I do think that, uh, that Tyler was right about Spencer kind of being that influence that he he's one of those teammates, as cocky as he is, has the respect of all his teammates, his buddies with all of his teammates, and, and to have his presence there is going to help them every time they come to the sideline and will be more of a calming influence because he's not a super fiery guy. He never was on the court. He's a, he's a very cocky, confident, cerebral type of personality, and I yeah. think that's going to be positive. Again, it goes back to, okay, you have this funeral, this mourning period for him for the season. The fact that he's back on the bench, at least you can kind of move on from him as the basketball player. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I completely agree. You know, Spencer Dinwiddie is a basketball junkie. You know, basketball is his life, and uh, so you know he's he's not just going to be one of those guys who's like, oh well, I'm done for the season. That's awesome. I get to go, you know, party and and do all this now that I you know wasn't going to do before. He's going to be there every day, and, and he's going to you know I said before the show he's going to be on the end of the bench right next to you know. Bo Gamble and the rest of the walk-ons being the biggest cheerleader they have. So I agree that he's going to be a, a calming influence for for this team. And having him around, I think, will you know will help them get over this whole thing. You know, he's, he's still going to be the same old Spencer. He's going to laugh and joke around with the guys, and eventually they're going to realize, all right, well, he's still here. He's not going to be on the court. And I think Tad Boyle. Will preach a lot. He's gonna he's gonna tell the team, you know, this team was not built on on Spencer Dinwiddie. This team is built on defense and rebounding. And if we continue to do those two things, then we'll be fine without Spencer. Yeah, I mean, I think you're not gonna see him be out on the floor screaming at the guys. You know, you might not. It's gonna be a more behind the scenes leadership. I think Xavier Talton and Jaron Hopkins are gonna need a lot of coaching from him. You know, they they those are the guys that really need to step up and help try to replace what he was on the court. And Spencer knows that. You know, he's going to be gone at some point. He knows that somebody needs to take the reins. And I think he's got to be that guy that helps accelerate that progression from those guys. You know, he he wants his team to do well whether he is on the court or not. You know, he's he'll, I know, I know that he'll find a way to keep this program going, you know, keep keep the morale up on the team and, and help find help them find a way to, you know, get past this and do everything they can to keep making that run for the tournament. Well, guys, as I guess somewhat positive, you could say that we've been so far in this show, obviously expressing the disappointment for Dinwiddie personally, his future, but there's a lot of doom and gloom on the Buff Stampede message board, on any message board, on any social media about the prospects for this team moving forward. Because the reality is, is that you just lost, again, one of the best players in the, in the country, in the conference, certainly the best player on the team. Is this season lost? I mean, because you have to go back to the expectations coming into the season. We talked before the non-conference was over about whether this team was ahead of schedule, and many of us said they were either on schedule or ahead of it. Um, so when looking at this season in terms of trying to determine whether it is indeed lost, what were the expectations previously? We thought this could be a team that makes a deep run into the tournament, NCAA tournament. We thought it was a team that had an outside shot to win the Pac-12, and but certainly a shot to finish top three. In fact, many people, I don't, I don't think we had many people picking CU below third, either nationally or in this circle here. 
And so my question is, is with that in mind, is the season lost from that perspective? Certainly there can be smaller goals set forth now, but is the season from that perspective lost? Yeah, I think uh, the season expectations to me are what they were right before Spencer Dinwiddie tried to make that cut. And at that point, I think the expectations, in best case scenario, this you're talking ceiling, is a Sweet 16 run. And after that cut, all of a sudden those expectations, that ceiling is dropped. There's no way. So from that sense, the season is lost from those expectations. Now you step back and you, you put things into perspective and, and you gain a little perspective in terms of where this program is under Tad Boyle right now and how much progress they've made as a program. And gosh, they're, they're still going to play, whether it's in the NCAA tournament or the NIT, they're still going to play postseason ball again. The future still looks really bright. We're probably not going to have Spencer Dinwiddie next year. Okay, so these young guys are going to get more experience. So there's that that positive spin you can put on things but in no way shape or form can you say that the ceiling has not been lowered substantially in that sense the season is lost in my opinion I think you know in sense of expectations yeah you absolutely have to to bring your expectations down but I really I don't like saying the season is lost Um, I think what this comes down to is it's going to be a, a huge gut check for you know the Tad Boyle as a coach, um, he recruited you know all these wings with the thought in mind that he had his guy at the point, and now he's really gonna have to find a way to get what he can get out of who he has and go forward with that. And I think it's gonna be a great test for him. And personally, I, I think that he's gonna answer the call on that test and really find a way to make this team click with what he has left. And, you know, I think the goal for them just needs to now be get into the tournament. And once you're in the tournament, I mean, we we all watch it every year. Worst any, teams have gone any, yeah, on a run. Worst, yeah, exactly. So you get into the tournament, you win one game, you're rolling, you're hot, you win another game. So And then you're in the Sweet 16. So I'm not going to say it's impossible for them to make the Sweet 16. But you do have to bring that expectations down now to, okay, let's just get into the tournament. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I agree. Saying the season is lost is... A little tough to spot. I mean, there's 14 games left, so, you know, things can happen. Obviously, we can't replace Spencer. It's just he's the best player on the team. That's what It is what it is there. This isn't going to be a top 25 team anymore. But we have enough of a head start that, you know, the possibility is certainly there that this team can still get into the tournament. Obviously, looking back on previous years, Nobody in Colorado, you know, no Colorado fan wants to leave the decision up to the committee. So it's going to be, um, there's going to be a lot of anxiety as we go into March here, um, because it's, you know, it's going to be close. I think at this point, you, you have the expectations are certainly lowered, and we're going to be scrapping and fighting just to give ourselves a shot to get in. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say the season is lost. I mean, there's been a lot of good things. It's not, you know, he's not the only talented kid on this team. But, yeah, I mean, where we were looking at this team going prior to that injury, that's not going to happen anymore. We just have to realize that, you know, kind of pare back, you know, what our thoughts are, you know, set new goals that are reasonable and worth them there. Is this team an NCAA tournament team? Do they have a – not to say if they started game one and were playing without him from game one, would they be an NCAA tournament team? But the reality is the committee is going to take into account the fact that they don't have Spencer Dinwiddie. So who are they without him? 
does this team, I think they certainly have the chances to prove to the committee that they are. Because they're going to play some really good teams. They still have four games left against UCLA and Arizona. Two surefire NCAA teams, and one of which might be the number one overall seed. They still have a game left against Cal, who looks like a tournament team right now. They still have a game against, they still have two games against Arizona State, who's probably not a tournament team, but that, that would be solid wins. You know, they, they have the opportunities. If you had to put a percentage on it that Colorado gets into the NCAA tournament, what would you put it at? Because right now, the way I'm looking at it, I say there's still a 45% chance that they get in. I'm not ready to say that they have a better chance to get in than not because we simply don't know what they're going to look like yet without it. I mean, we've never seen it for more than a half. But I would go 45%. I think because of the, the resume they put together, and, and I know at the end of the day when the NCAA committee sits down, they're going to take into consideration that Spencer Dinwiddie is not playing for Colorado. But I still, I'm going to be optimistic in a sense. I'm going to still say they have a 60% chance to get in the NCAA tournament. And a lot of that goes into having a lot of faith in Tad Boyle and, and a lot of faith into what he can do with what he's whatever he's had he seems to kind of be able to fit those pieces together now that team that was out there in the second half against Washington that's the team we see the rest of the season the chances are less than 10 percent I'm I'm banking on the fact that they're going to be a much better team going forward as these guys kind of assimilate to not having Spencer Dinwiddie his ability to get to the free throw line his defensive ability all that stuff I think it's still you, you look at the resume now I mean what are you talking there a four or five seed in the NCAA tournament if it, if it was to start today yeah, with Spencer Dinwiddie so now I think what you're talking about is obviously trying to go for clawing for that nine nine or ten seed and that's the reality of what the way things thing is now but I give them a good chance to get that uh, based off uh, having a lot of putting a lot of faith blind faith in, in terms of this team moving forward yeah I'm actually right in line with Adam here at 60 percent um, I think the resume that they've they've built so far is strong enough that they can uh, I don't know if the word is coast but they can you know uh, hold serve almost and still still get into the tournament. You know, there's so many players on this team that have the potential to step up and take their game to the next level. The first one that comes to my mind is Xavier Johnson. You know, it, it, he has so much potential to rise his game up to, you know, he has Pac-12, uh, all Pac-12 talent. You know, you have Josh Scott, who obviously has shown that he's all Pac-12 talent. And then you have a guy like, you know, Dustin Thomas, who... He hasn't shown almost anything yet, but, you know, maybe this is what it takes for it to click on in his head. All right, time to go. You know, uh, this team needs me now. So I think there's so much there that we don't know about what, who it's going to be or what it's going to be. But I think Tad Boyle, and we haven't said this yet, but his staff, you know, he really falls back on his staff a lot when it comes to rotations and stuff like that. I think they'll come together and they'll figure out a way to motivate this team and motivate certain guys to be able to propel, propel this team into the tournament. Yeah, I'm going to play the devil's advocate role here a little bit and then at the end kind of talk about the ways that they can find themselves in the tournament what they need to do. I'm afraid that the committee is going to completely throw out our current resume because Spencer Dinwiddie is the main reason we have it right now. They're going to look at this team as 0-0, zero and zero, and they want to see what this team does without him for the remainder of the schedule. 
what is it going to take for us to still get in from that point? Well, it really depends on how the rest of the teams in the Pac-12 do and how soft the bubble is. But I don't know that six and eight or seven and seven or holding serve, as you put it, I'm assuming you're somewhere in that range, is going to get us in. Because if I'm the committee, why do I put in a team that is limping into the finish line over somebody who's probably probably played better down the stretch and has their, all their entire arsenal available to them in the NCAA tournament. You know, being at the mercy of the committee before, it's a scary proposition to have to do it again. I would put the percentage closer to 35% right now um, just because I don't think we're going to get the benefit of the doubt if we're close. Without Spencer right. and that's and that's a big part of this. Yeah, <clears throat> I think in terms of of the, of the committee, it's almost a blessing for this team that they do have 14 games without Spencer Dinwiddie. You know, if this happened, we looked at both ways. Right, I, I agree, uh, but I think it's a chance for them to prove, you know, that we we can get wins without Spencer Dinwiddie. They're gonna ha- obviously have to get some wins over really good teams, and I think that if they do that, then the committee will recognize that. But you know, I think. If they were, you know, if they had ten games or so, and then they went, you know, four and six in those ten games, and you know, lost a couple at home, maybe it could be worse for them. I think this gives that it gives Tad Boyle a little more time to adjust and figure out. He basically has to, you know, refigure out everything he does with this team. He need, he's gonna need time, so you know, he gets in a little extra time, and this team gets time time to prove to the committee, you know we can win those games. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, you they're going to have enough time to prove to the committee that they still are a tournament team, and they're going to have their chances. I think the one, in order for them to get in, those shots that Spencer Dinwiddie is no longer taking, those all can't go to a skill. He can't become a 20-shot attempted game guy. Those shots need to go to they need to go to West Gordon. They need to go to Josh Scott. They need to go to Xavier Johnson. They need to be able to spread the ball around, get the ball into the paint, and dominate inside the paint. They're going to have to because that's that's where your advantage is. Josh Scott is better than almost every other big man he's going to play for the rest of the year. And you could almost I I, I would agree. I think he's better than every yeah, single one. Though, that he needs those shots. Askia is not. He's important, obviously, to the team. He's not consistent enough. To be relied upon taking 20 shots a game, I don't think we are going to get where we need to go in order to be a tournament team right now. The next subject is next man up, and I'm glad we started talking about this because, in my opinion, the identity of this team needs to shift from offensively being a guard-dominated team to this is a team that tries to score 45 points in the paint every single night on the backs of Josh Scott, Wes Gordon, and Xavier Johnson. I think Xavier Johnson needs to get a ton more minutes at the four than he's been getting. I really do. I think that lineups like Jerron Hopkins, Askia Booker, and an Xavier Talton with either Gordon or Scott at the five and Johnson at the four, maybe not as a starting lineup, but those lineups need to be utilized because you've got to start taking advantage of those three big guys, those three front court players that you have, because they can play dumb. And the reality is, like you said, you don't want those all those, you know, eight shots a game that Spencer is taking going right to a ski of Booker. You can't give those shots to a 41 percenter from the field. You can't afford it. And as we saw against Washington, and this is one thing that I think 
could creep up more as the year goes on. Askia started forcing it as, as hard as I've ever seen him force it. He was so visually frustrated offensively on trying to make something happen from the perimeter that it took the team out of any sense of rhythm whatsoever. <clears throat> Those shots have to go into the big guy. They started to make a little bit more of a concerted effort to get Josh the ball on the on the block in the second half, and that's what I think they've got to go forward. So when, I, when the question is posed, who needs to take over this team, I have no doubt that it needs to be a mix of Xavier Johnson and Josh Scott. And I say it this way, Josh Scott can be your calming influence. He's never going to be your emotional leader. That's not his personality. It's not off the court. It's not on the court. It just will never be that way. He is reserved. But he can be that calming influence that's like, hey, next time down, pound it into me. If I'm doubled, I'll get you a shot. Otherwise, I'll get us a good look. And that was kind of the way Spencer approached things a little bit on the court. From an emotional standpoint, I think it would be beneficial to this team if Xavier Johnson stepped into that role. Because Xavier Johnson may not always be the most efficient guy on the court. And he's not the best defender. We know these things. Now, he's improved defensively, but he is also such an emotional guy that he doesn't just make emotional good plays. He's also emotional in the huddle. He's emotional on the sideline. He's emotional with his teammates in such a positive way. He never, he, he's not the type of guy, and you watch him in practice, he's not the type of guy that just turns negative with anybody. He'll give them criticism. He'll give them instruction, but it's all from an emotionally positive place. And I think his kind of personality could be huge for this team in the way he goes up for rebounds, the way he can get putbacks. He's been so much more active on the offensive glass since conference play started. That's the kind of emotion that you can get from him because we all see it. Every time Xavier Johnson gets an and one or a dunk, he's screaming, he's pumping his fists, he's knocking his chest, he's doing all these things that you want from kind of a swing guy, a power guy, a blue-collar guy. The only time a skier really gets like that is when he's making flashy plays. And if you get that, and, and while that's fine at times, I think you kind of want it from a more blue-collar guy, and that could be Xavier Johnson. So I'm interested to see what you guys think. I love the Xavier Johnson. You think back to a year ago when they started 1-4 and four in conference play. He was one of the guys that really kind of elevated his game to another level in conference play last year, and kind of elevated the, to them to that next level. And I think it, it, you find, kind of found themselves at odds again again this year, even though the record looks pretty good right now. I think that's a good. And his three point percentage was going down was was much better last year. So that's something that he needs to improve on. He started to shoot it a little bit better. A little bit better, but um, yeah, I mean. To, to your point, Xavier Talton is what he is. Yeah. And he, he made a big shot against Washington State. But if all of a sudden he's your starting point guard and he's asked to play 30 minutes a game, you're in trouble. Like, you, you don't want to pull guys too far out of what they can do. And uh, Jerron Hopkins, I think, will want to handle the ball a little bit more. We'll kind of see a little bit more of what he can do in that sense. But, no, when you talk about the scoring production for what Spencer Dinwiddie is going to drop off, it's got to come from those guys down low in the post. Yeah, I mean, the the question to me is who needs to take over this team. And to me, this doesn't mean that he needs to take over the shots, but I do think it needs to be a ski looker that takes over this team in terms of of, of leadership and and maybe even a a little bit of ball handling. I think, you know, Askia is going to take a few more shots a game, and I think he needs to make a point to himself 
and I'm sure Tad Boyle will make this point to him, this doesn't mean you have to force. And I think that's kind of how he felt in that Washington game. And it, as it, we knew, uh, as soon as the game started, it wasn't going to be Ski's day. But I think, you know, <clears throat> he needs to make a point to get to the rim and get to the foul line. And once he starts driving, you know, his assist numbers are going to start going through the roof when, when Josh Scott's, you know, just sitting there for a little dump off. So I think, you know, of course, like I said earlier, Xavier Johnson has to step up and Wesley Gordon and all those guys are going to have to disperse the, the points kind of the same way they dispersed the rebounds when they lost um, Andre Robertson. But in terms of taking over the team, I think that person needs to be a ski booker. And he already has become that leader. Now he needs to become, you know, the vocal leader and the on-the-court leader and kind of just that guy that brings everything together, that glue that Spencer Dinwiddie was. Yeah, I, I agree with the ski booker talk as well. I mean, I think he almost has to be a completely different player. He, you know, he's... Jerron Hopkins is not ready to handle the ball on a primary basis for this team. He's just not ready to do that yet. And as Adam said, Xavier Talton can't play 30 minutes a game. He, that's just not what he is yet. And, you know, that's okay. A skier can handle the ball. He's going to have to be that guy. He's going to have... This is, like a, this is a true test of how... Of, of what he can be as a player. He's got to be completely different. He's got not pass first, but he's got to look to get other people involved way more than he ever has. He has to take on that role that Spencer did. He doesn't need to add average 10 assists a game, but he probably needs to average three or four, which is way more than he's ever done in his yeah. career. And I, I think the second thing is Josh Scott. We, some, there can't be these three or four interior passes on the inside anymore. Josh Scott needs to get the ball in the post, make a move, and finish way more often. He's got to be aggressive on the block. He he can score almost every single time he gets the ball on the block. He has to be able to do it. Too many pass outs, too many times he's just, he needs to get the ball on the block 20 times a game minimum. And if he gets doubled, pass it out. He's got to be, he's going to have to learn how to do it eventually so it might as well be now. He has got to get a lot of shots on the block because he's the guy who can score from there consistently. I think when you talk about stuff like that, though, I don't know what it is, but teams just never do it. You know, they they, they talked about it going into Oregon. They said our, our advantage is inside. And then, you know, Ski, Ski scores 27 and Spencer scores 23. To me, I don't I don't know what it is, but there's always a mental block into consistently getting the ball down there. On every college team. Ever. Like, ever. <laughs> yeah, totally. Maybe like Shaq's LSU team knew how to get it in there. Roy Hibbert was not an offensive force in college. Oh, not even close. Not even close. I bet. What do you average? Ten a game? I'd be surprised. I mean, Greg Oden was the best center in college basketball, and he, he wasn't a big time scorer on in terms of on the block. Now he got a lot of second opportunities. Joakim Noah, same thing. Al Horford even did a lot of his damage in the kind of high post area. I mean, these are guys that are legit NBA big men who struggle offensively to produce in college because and you hear this every year around tournament time. College is a guard game. College is about your guards and how you are able to dictate tempo, get to the line and stuff like that. But I think Colorado needs to at least if their identity is defense and rebounding, I think part of that rebounding identity needs to start being we crash offensive boards relentlessly. 
if you want to turn this into a game where you get a defensive board and you're running out and we're running back, okay, we'll turn it into a track meet, but we're also going to get 15 to 20 offensive boards a night. Yeah, I think the, the main thing with the, guard, with the big man issue in college is not a lot of guards are good at getting the ball into the post. Yeah. And not and a lot of big men are overly skilled, though. Yeah, Ski and Xavier are not big. So they're going to struggle with that, and that's kind of my main concern. But, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't happen a lot, but I think you have to do it. I mean, that's where your advantage is on the court now. They have to find a way to get the ball into the thing. They just have to. I don't think there's really any other way. I think, you know, they could almost experiment against UCLA, Todd Boyle, Make a rule. There literally has to be a post touch on every offensive possession, unless it's a break. Unless it's a layup. Yeah, yeah. I and I'm glad you brought up Boyle, guys. Boyle's going to earn every penny of his salary this year. I mean, you, there's not a lot of coaches around the country. I don't care who it is. If you're talking about Coach K, Bill Self, anybody that are experts in handling this, when you lose your unquestioned best player. What is this going to be like for Tad Boyle? I mean, what is Tad Boyle's biggest struggle? And as important as all these other things that we've talked about, about players stepping up, what's going to be his biggest uh, kind of obstacle? And how important is Tad Boyle in this whole process? Well, the biggest obstacle is is something that was already a deficiency, was their perimeter defense. Yeah. And Spencer didn't when he goes down, and you see C.J. CJ Wilcox go off in the second half. 21 points in the second how, half. How do you – Replace that. That and, and the only thing that I can think of is flat out effort. Yeah. And Tadwell is pretty good about pushing guys' buttons in the right way. You see it if, if you've ever been to a practice, Tad Boyle knows the certain times and it's very calculated. He's a very smart man, very good coach. He knows when to do that. And so he's going to have to push all those right buttons to get maximum effort out of his team because there, there's talent, there's length. They, they could do okay, but it's something that they've already struggled with with their best perimeter defense on the court. Now that he's not there, it's going to be kind of finding, finding a way to push the buttons to make that somewhat of an area they can maybe not make a, a strength. That's not going to happen. But at least something where it's not killing you night in, night out. Yeah, I think his biggest thing is going to be guard rotations. You know, he now goes from being comfortable with four guards that, he, you know, he can put on the floor. Now he only has three. And unless you're going to bring uh, Eli Salzer into the game for extended minutes, which I don't think he wants to do or Colorado fans want to see at this point. So I think it's going to be interesting for him. He's going to have a skia booker out there. I mean, a skia booker is going to get a lot of minutes. And then it's either going to be Xavier Tallman or Jerron Hopkins out there alongside him. I think it's going to be a real interesting thing to follow to how Tad Boyle rotates those guards and, you know, finds a way to get the most out of his lineups with the guards that he has at his disposal now. Yeah, I think that this is going to be an odd comparison, but I almost feel like maybe this team has been using Spencer's Dinwid- Spencer Dinwiddie's ability on, as perimeter defense as a crutch. You, know, you can kind of look back when LeBron played in Cleveland. All the guys on offense kind of got caught standing him, standing and watching him play at times. And so I'm hoping that with him gone, the mentality becomes, 
I no longer have Spencer Dinwiddie on the other end of the court to be guarding the perimeter. I have to do this. Kind of like Andre and, Robertson with rebounding. Right. Yeah, exactly. Other, like, you don't have a choice now. The energy has to be there every second you're on the court. Spencer's not there to help you when you take a chance on a pass or, you know, get lazy and let someone dribble drive you. Yeah. You don't have that crutch anymore. Now it's on you. And a lot of the time, guys who are, you know, they're Division One athletes for a reason. You know, they know how to turn it on. I'm hoping that we'll get a couple guys that it really clicks and the energy is there all the time. And, you know, just the, fo- the focus defensively, just it just happens. And you'll, you'll, you'll see improvement, especially from some of these freshman guys. You know, as they get or- older, a little more prepared, a little more comfortable with the flow in the game in Pac-12, I'm hoping that we get some guys to step up and do the best they can to replace the unreplaceable thing. I felt there was the crutch on the offensive end with Spencer's ability to get to the free throw line at times, too. Yeah. Do, do they, in, in the same, do they step up to the challenge in that sense, too, I think, you know, is a big question mark. I'm actually not worried about this team offensively because there are enough weapons. I, they're not going to be the same. But I don't think they go, I mean, because they were a good offensive team, mainly, I mean, I would say very good because of their way, the way that they can get to the line. You know, I'd, I'd say the only offensive thing that I would be quote unquote worried about is sealing games late with free throws because they don't have that guy. Spencer Dinwiddie is an eighty-eight percent free throw shooter from the line. They no longer have a closer, a bona fide closer, and that's important. But they still have guys that can put the ball in the bucket. I mean, I think this obviously causes Trayshawn Fletcher and um, Dustin Thomas to get more minutes. And perhaps in those roles, they step up. I mean, the reality is that Dustin Thomas has done nothing this freshman season. He has, by far, been the weakest of the three freshmen getting the most points. Did he? I don't think he played in the first half against Washington, did he? Uh, he did. He did. He, right, he right. got some minutes, but okay. not much. Yeah. You know, Trayshawn Fletcher played very well in the first half yeah. and then tweaked his knee and wasn't the same. You know, but so offensively, I don't know that I'm necessarily worried about this team. They're not going to be great, but they'll be fine. Defensively, look at the guards they're going to be going against. And because you look at Jaheed Carson. Now, what I would have guessed that they were going to do is put Dinwiddie on Carson to affect him with his length, a skia booker on Jermaine Marshall, who's a shooter type of guy. Now, you're putting Jerron Hopkins on Jermaine Marshall and Askia Booker, who does not do a great job of avoiding contact on the perimeter defensively. He's a fine, he's a solid defender, but he draws a lot of fouls on himself with that. And, I mean, G.E. Carson could foul him out with like 10 minutes left in the game. You know, so that's what I would be worried about. I'd be worried about who is going to guard Kyle Anderson on UCLA. Spencer Dinwiddie was the worst matchup in the league for Kyle Anderson because he was 6'6 and long. He was the absolute worst matchup, and now Colorado has nobody to match up with him. Who's going to match up with Daylon Wright at Utah? Daylon Wright is one of the better point guards in this league, maybe the fourth best point guard in the league, and now Colorado has nobody that can defend him legitimately. So this is a league of point guards. There are some really good point guards in this league. Washington State, Royce Woolridge is a good point guard. I mean, every team in this league has a has good play at point guard position, even Stanford. And so now, all of a sudden, that's where I think Colorado is going to be hurt the most is the fact that in a point guard-driven league, they've lost theirs. 
and defensively, that is going to come back to absolutely burn these guys. Ultimately. And the reality was, Spencer Dinwiddie didn't have great rebounding numbers this year because his defense of the best guard on the other team opened up space for Eskia Booker to get those kind of loose ball rebounds, which he was getting about three of them a game, kind of scooping up those loose ones. Now, that's gone. And that's how a lot of their breaks started. So it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, it's hard to believe that an hour has gone by already. But it wasn't the happiest. It wasn't the happiest Boston Beat Radio at all. But ultimately, we're going to see how this Colorado Buffaloes team deals with this. Of course, we're going to have much more coverage as the week goes on. And guys, if you have to say, I mean, the first game without Dinwiddie, you've got to keep it to just a quick win prediction or a loss prediction against UCLA this week. Against UCLA, uh, I'm going to say they they go down by three points and lose their first game at home. I think they're going to come out very inspired, and I think they're going to find a way to win that behind the crowd. I agree they're going to be inspired. They're going to play good. I just think UCLA is too talented, and the matchup with Spencer is not good enough. Well, we'll see how it goes. Thanks for tuning in this week, guys, and uh, good luck to the Buffs.